This audio program may contain descriptions of violence and topics that may not be suitable for everyone. Please listen with caution. Do you know what the most frightening thing in the world is? It's fear. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Why, she wouldn't even harm a fly. Yay, now we're recording. Yay. And hopefully I'm not as loud as last time because I got all weird. Um, well, I I'm felt out. last time they said, the person said you could, they couldn't hear you. Yeah, because I had to like, I had to do our two um, levels very differently because mine came out so loud because I get uh, up on the mic. Gotcha. So now I'm farther from the mic. You're still I'm, hitting the red when you talk. Is that I know. That is weird. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm like in the yellow every time I speak. Yeah, I need to be around there. So maybe I'll like, yeah, there we go. Is that better? I mean, you're still hitting the red. I know. It's so it's weird. It's so weird why you're so loud. I don't know. So I have a little bit of business for us okay. to take care of. I wrote it down because we're really shitty at remembering. Mm hmm. So we have to do our Patreon shout outs, which we slack on. So we'd like to shout out Janae and you can follow her adorable kitty bacon bits at at bacon bits kitty on Instagram. Uh, we'd also like to thank Chelsea, Rachel, Samantha and Sydney for supporting the show at the highest tier. And if any of you would like us to plug your social media or business on the next episode, please email us or send us a Patreon message. And then we also would like to announce that we've set up a Twitch channel so that we can hopefully host movie nights with our patrons and we can have the occasional Q&A or chat. Our Twitch name is Hell and High Horror, all one word, and you can find it at twitch.tv slash Hell and High Horror. I'm so excited so, for movie night. <laughs> oh, it's going to be so good and we'll probably put a poll up about, you know, what movie, mm -hmm. see how to set it up, because we're brand fucking new at this. Yeah, like, this is, I don't do Twitch. I'm not no, Mike does Twitch, so I'm kind of leaning on him to help. So that's what we wanted to announce. And before we, like, totally get into it, I promised I would tell you a story, like, a month ago, and I never did. So, a few weeks ago, I went to see the band Perry. Mm -hmm. And... We went because my dad's crew were doing the stage. And so we just kind of like hang in the back stage area. And it was at the Balloon Festival or the Festival of Ballooning because Balloon Fest was taken. So it's the New Jersey Festival of Ballooning and it's all hot air balloons. And they always have a big concert. We've seen like the Bare Naked Ladies there and Joan Jett and all kinds of other people. So... We went because I like the band Perry, although their new music, they are angry. Bad. They are very <laughs> angry. It's very um, different. I don't like it's it. It's so different. So we went. We're just like, oh, it's a fun thing to do. It's free for us. So we get there and there is a bunch of SWAT team members and like working dogs and police and army people. And yeah. they're like sweeping the area backstage. And apparently what we found out was there was a shooting threat made against one of the brothers oh, in the right. band. You told me that. Yes. <sighs> but I didn't tell you the full thing. So 
I, like, couldn't find any news articles about it, so I guess they're trying to keep it a little hush-hush, but he pissed someone off, and they deemed the threat for that show a credible threat because the guy had bought a ticket to the show. He had made, like, travel arrangements. I guess they intercepted him somewhere in Tennessee at first, but they released him because he was deemed mentally sane. So they just gave him his guns back. It's fine, whatever. So they thought that he was on his way there, and he had guns because they gave him his guns back. All right, well, he and, needs his guns, Austin. Right, we can't What are we going to do, away. take his guns away? That would be crazy. That would be insane. So, yes. How would he live his life? <laughs> How would he function? Gunless? So, you can't do that. <laughs> you can't. So there were all these protection teams around, and we were standing there, and, you know, you're backstage, you can stand on either side of the stage. And I was like, well... Which brother is it? Because I want to stand on the opposite side of the stage. Right. Why like, why won't they tell us which one? I don't want to stand on the side of the stage with a brother that has the shooting threat against him. Yeah. You know? And during If I Die Young, I was like, mm-hmm. this would be the perfect time for that guy to shoot. That him. would be when I... Right? So I would, I was like, no, like, let's slink off away from the stage a little bit. But nothing happened. But That's I just good. thought that was really... It was very interesting. Crazy. And what did he do? What, yeah, what did he I do wonder what guy happened. Off? I Me wonder too. if the guy's crazy or if he, I mean, the guy's I crazy think no matter pissed, what, but like. He pissed the guy off in some way. Yeah. Like, but he I slept with his girlfriend was, or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Like that. That's what I was saying. Mm-hmm. I wonder if he actually did something wrong or if he just said something like, I don't like your hat. And the guy was like, yeah i mean i think he did something to this dude and this dude was like okay well i'm gonna fucking kill you i know where you are on every night for the next few weeks so yeah so i just thought that was crazy i was like really the band perry can i tell you a quick crazy story talking about absolutely so do you know georgia florida line florida yes (laughs) yes whatever, whatever way that goes um gfl yeah. Or they no, have, Florida George Line. It's FGL, FGL, right? I guess someone in their band, their girlfriend goes to the lash salon I work at. And, like, oh. they're friends with the people I work with, whatever. Mm-hmm. And one day, I guess, I tried to Google it thinking he'd be, like, really famous. But I guess the guy's not, like, in the band enough. Like, he's just someone who plays with them oh, on tour Oh, is he, like, a, a traveling musician? Yeah, like, like he, he probably plays, them, like, yeah. the drums or the guitar in the background. Yeah. He's not the band he cheated on this girl a bunch and so she posted on snapchat <gasps> or not snapchat on instagram stories she was like posting all these screenshots of him cheating on her <gasps> and like tagging the band though oh they fuck. were like georgia florida she was like georgia florida line your you know your whatever guitarist or whatever is a, a dick. cheater <gasps> you know like shit like That's that amazing. <laughs> it was <laughs> hilarious this happened like two weeks ago That's great. I fully support that. (laughs) Yeah. So today we're going to be talking about unexplained events, right? Yes. Mine's long. Mine is pretty long too. Okay. Um, I'm excited, but too. (laughs) But also, I couldn't believe that you texted me and you were like, "What are you doing?" And I told you, and you were like, "Shit, I was going to do that because I just think of it as so obscure." It is, but it's like. I was researching like unexplained events, so it obviously would it would it come came up. up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so also I, Yeah. After this I'm gonna send you a picture of this cute little closet I'm in. 
Because I put all yeah. our Helen High Horror stuff, stuff like in it, and I put Aww. my true crime books in it, and I'm just like chilling in this closet. It's really relaxing. Oh, that's Pretty nice. Pretty big closet. My, I have these like little battery powered lights in mine because there's no light in my closet. Uh, my <laughs> closets blocked... have lights. Oh but yeah. My, no. All my rooms don't have lights, so I've had to oh, buy really? a bunch of lights because they they don't have like like my that's kitchen so and my weird. hallway do, but not my bedrooms or my living room. Yeah. Huh. They don't have like overhead lights, so they just have. I have to like. That's plug really in weird. Yeah. Mine has like a big window. But I covered it with a blanket because it's out. It looks out to the street. Your closet has a window. Yeah, like a big oh, window. What a fancy closet! Right, it's so weird. Wait, that's such a weird thing to put in a closet. Though. I know it has a window facing the street. I'll sh- oh. I'll send you a picture. We'll yeah. send. We'll we will we'll um, exchange <laughs> closet pics. <laughs> so, yes. I also wanted to say to you, my friend, happiest of birthdays. <gasps> Oh, thank your, you. <laughs> your birthday will be passed by the time this is released, yeah. but I want everyone to wish Reppy a happy birthday on social media. It is hey. on the 19th <laughs> tomorrow. Did you get my package? No, not yet. Okay, you should get it tomorrow. I'm very Yay. excited about How it. Exciting. <laughs> yes. I'm excited about it. <laughs> yeah, does Jake have something planned? Yeah, well, he, for one, he did this amazing thing yesterday which he was like is that okay as a birthday present and I was like basically begging him to do it so I was like I don't know why you're worried about but he he not only paid for a cargo van to undo my storage unit which was great Uh which was also like 70 bucks so yeah a lot of money but also I told him I was like we'll meet at my storage unit after work and we'll load up the van and we'll come here and instead he got the van early loaded up the the van by himself and just met me here oh that's so nice and he's also taking me to that taco place that I really like the one we went to (gasps) bar taco yes and I'm gonna get a thousand tacos and a margarita because all I told him I was like all I want for my birthday is to put on some makeup put on a nice dress and like go eat good food (laughs) yeah that's a great place to do it you know I've like need anything so yeah but anyway unexplained events (laughs) yeah yeah let's get into that so in 1916 dr constantine von economo was working in the psychiatric neurological clinic at the university of vienna economo was an austrian psychiatrist and neurologist who came from wealthy and aristocratic families He received the best possible education money could buy at the time and found the areas of psychology, neurology, mechanical engineering, and aeronautics to be the most significant in his life. Same. Yeah. You know, aeronautics are really significant. You know how important that is to me. (laughs) So important. By the time he was treating patients in Vienna, he had studied internal medicine, neurology, history, and psychology in several different countries and under many notable medical minds of the time. In the latter part of 1916, several patients were admitted to the university hospital with unusual neurological symptoms. They all had different diagnoses, including meningitis, multiple sclerosis, and delirium. Though each patient's symptoms were unique, the most common thread among the group was persistent lethargy, which, same. After studying the patients, Von Economo 
theorized that the set of symptoms, though somewhat unique to each patient, was indicative of one unknown disease, which he called encephalitis lethargica, or sleepy sickness. It's such a cute name for something so nefarious. (laughs) At the same time, a French physician named René Crochet was treating patients who presented with similar symptoms at a military hospital. Crochet and Economo both published papers about the mysterious disease in 1917. Both doctors found that the disease manifested in two stages, acute and chronic. However, it was often hard to tell these phases apart because they blended together. Because, like, it's really hard to pinpoint when one acute stage just takes a left turn into chronic, I guess. I mean, yeah. But aren't they the opposite? (laughs) Kind of. Acute is just, like, these milder symptoms. And then chronic is you have these symptoms constantly. Right. So the first signs of EL, as it became known, are high fever, sore throat, headache, lethargy, double vision, delayed physical and mental response, sleep inversion, and catatonia. Are they sure these people just weren't hungover (laughs) for a very long time? Half of it (laughs) sounds like being hungover. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) In more severe cases, the patients enter a coma-like state. They experience abnormal eye movements, upper body weakness, muscle pain, tremors, neck rigidity, and psychosis. These more advanced cases cause a state of akinetic mutism in which the patient could not move or speak, but was still conscious and aware. Chronic EL often resulted in patients sleeping for long periods of hours, days, or even months. This phase of the disease sometimes presented months or years after the initial phase. Wow. So you can have this acute phase and then it'll go away. And you're like, oh, cool, I'm cured. Let's get on with my life. Let's get married, have kids, whatever. And then all of a sudden you're fucking uh, a kinetic mute. So, yeah, terrifying. Also, it really reminds me of... Did you ever read the book or see, there was some music video that referenced it, the story Johnny Got His Gun? Yeah. So that story always terrified me. I know the song. Yes. So That you're talking about. The story, yeah, the story is basically about a soldier who is in battle and gets injured and they think he's pretty much checked out mentally. But his body's still alive, so they do all these experiments on him. But he's conscious. He just can't communicate. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a terrifying story that it has, like, very loose space, in fact. And I almost did that. But that this is what it reminds me of. Like, they're there somewhere, but there is no physical or outward sign that they're conscious. Yeah. What a nightmare situation to go through. It is a severe nightmare situation and it also reminds me of i just listened to this podcast called room 20 it's about a man whose identity was unknown for 15 years and they just Mm -hmm. called him 66 garage for some reason he was in a car accident and he was in a vegetative state and it's kind of the same he can do some things like he recognizes certain words and blinks Mm -hmm. and makes like moaning sounds but that's it like, that's all he'll ever be able to do, and it's Such terrifying. Such a fear to, like, be there in your mind, but not 
physically yes be there able to do anything yeah and it's just like like you're just at the mercy of whatever your caretakers are doing to you you know also the song is one by metallica in case yes listen to it i knew it was metallica i think it was one of those i think it says something it says something like um the world is gone and i'm lost inside or something like that. yes and the music video is very traumatizing so yes Yes. Because of the commonalities of the early symptoms of EL, many patients were misdiagnosed with malaise, the flu, pharyngitis, vertigo, and other viruses. It does sound like a horrific version of the flu. Yeah. Because you get tired and like lethargic and then like. Yeah, it really does. And then again, these long periods of time can pass, so you don't even know what's coming. Right. So you're like, okay, maybe it was the flu, like a terrible, yeah. terrible flu. And, and, it, and it's fine. over. Yeah. Neurological symptoms could set in within hours of these more mild symptoms, as was the case with a young woman who experienced a sudden onset of hemiplasia, which is paralysis of one side of the body. This happened while she was walking home from attending a concert one evening. Oh 30 gosh. minutes. <gasps> Sorry. Did, did have you seen the new Netflix documentary called Diagnosis, I think? <gasps> I just started it last night. The the person, the girl who, like... The first the episode? The mom who's like, I haven't watched the full first episode yet because I was watching it while I was unpacking. And then I was like, no, mm-hmm. I have to sit down and actually watch this. Yeah. But the mother who's like, my daughter becomes paralyzed for, like, a number of minutes, like, a hundred times a day or whatever. Oh, yeah. I only saw the first episode. I don't know if it's the same yeah. thing we were talking about. But because I also was like in and out and then I sat down and watched yeah. it. Well, this, I don't think she's in the first episode, but she's in like the promo for the show. Oh, okay. She's yeah. like, my daughter, you know, for a minute or two goes paralyzed a hundred to two hundred times a day. She'll just That's go paralyzed. fucking crazy. And that just kind of reminded me of it. Like, imagine you're walking home and then you're just, half of you can't move. Like, Yeah, this girl, 30 minutes after arriving home, she fell asleep and didn't wake up. And 12 days later, she died. Oh my god. Just, it, it, all it took was 30 minutes. And because there's such a wide range of symptoms among EL patients, Economo categorized acute EL into three forms somnolent, ephthalmoplegic, hyperkinetic, and amyostatic akinetic. The first one, somnolent, ophthalmoplegic, I'm going to call it <laughs> S-O, S-O okay. um, is the most common form, and it developed quickly after initial symptoms. Patients would experience confusion and would feel dazed. These symptoms would often be mistaken for meningeal irritation, Cranial nerve palsy, a disease of total loss of function in the three, four, and six nerves also occurred. The most common symptom of EL was an overwhelming desire to sleep for abnormally long periods of time. Some patients were easily awakened or aware of things that had taken place around them while they were in a state of semi-unconsciousness. The SO form of EL carried a 50% mortality rate. Those survivors experienced fewer lifelong symptoms than those of other forms of EL. So if you were part of the half that survived this disease, you would have very few symptoms going forward. Gotcha, okay. So the second category of EL, the hyperkinetic form, presented with an initial manic phase. These patients experienced involuntary movements, vocalizations, and myoclonic 
twitches. They also experienced myrrhythmia of the eye and mouth muscles. Once this phase subsides, the patient would become restless, weak, and fatigued for days. This stage was also accompanied by pain in the face and limbs, visual and tactile hallucinations, and oh day-night God. sleep cycle reversal. So they became... This is taking a turn. Now yeah. it's like crazy. Yeah. So they're twitching all over the place. Mm-hmm. They are weak and restless, and they're seeing shit that isn't there, they're hearing shit that isn't there, and also they're raccoons now, because they're <laughs> up all night, and they're sleeping during the day. And they've got terrible dark circles. <laughs> they do. <laughs> they also love trash. So <laughs> They're trash pandas. They are, and <laughs> this is who they are now. So, <laughs> Aw, wouldn't it be cute if you got a disease where you turned into a little raccoon? It would be cute. Hey, baby. Only they are just twitching all over the place. So the amniostatiokinetic, a kinetic form of EL, was by far the most terrifying and the least common, luckily. Patients with this form of the disease experienced rigidity and lack of movement with no weakness, meaning that if their arm is is forward, you can't move it down. So there's no weakness to it. So you're going into like rigor mortis, but... Kind of, but you're alive and conscious. But you're alive. Yeah. Patients often could not alter their position, and when they did so, they could only do it really slowly. Mm-hmm. Patients could remain completely rigid and immobile for long periods of time, though the rigidity could be overcome with some external force. Like, if if they had an amount of weakness in it, someone could, like, really push it down, you know, move them. But it was hard. It was really hard. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's a lot like rigor mortis. So these patients were completely mentally intact, but could not communicate or display emotions with facial movements and were essentially frozen in a single position with no way to respond to outside stimuli. A nightmare. It is a waking nightmare. And this state could persist for several months. So there's that person who was Turning it, it slowly, like, turning to stone, they used to say. Wasn't Ooh, that... I mean, maybe. But also, do you know the, the person who was in the coma for 10 years? You ever read about that story? No, I don't There's think There's a so. man who was in a coma for 10 years, and they finally took him off life support. This was, like, 10 years ago. This was a while ago. And he mm-hmm. actually woke up. He didn't die. But when he woke up, he told his family that he had been awake for 10 years. Oh, my god! Inside gosh. of his body. So he knew. Eventually, he was like, eventually, I could create these own fantasies where I was, like, living. But the first, he was like, for the first, like, four years, it was misery. Yeah. Because he was just alive and aware of everything. But he couldn't say anything or do anything because yeah whatever whatever had happened whatever trauma this was from trauma but whatever mm-hmm. it was wasn't allowing him to do it and so now when I think about that I'm like if I'm ever in a coma please turn on tv shows I like just in case I can hear things yeah throw that's on some crazy. comedy yeah just something to occupy <laughs> my day please Music, you know yeah so it's I mean it's just the worst like yeah. this is the worst case scenario some cases of encephalitis lethargica developed into the chronic phase, which took one to five years to take hold. Some patients experienced the transition from the acute phase to the chronic phase immediately, and some developed it more than a decade later. Notably, one patient entered the chronic phase 45 years after the initial acute phase of the disease. Whoa, that's yeah. insane. Is what it, other that, thing does that? Like, I can't imagine. Yeah, it just sits in your body and waits and develops. 
So the chronic phase manifested as Parkinsonism with sleep disturbances, oculomotor abnormalities, involuntary movement, speech and respiratory abnormalities, and psychiatric disorders. Oh yeah, I guess it is a lot like Parkinson. Yeah, yeah. At they, first, at least, you know. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Post-encephalitic Parkinsonism. Parkinsonism also presented in several chronic patients. These patients could be akinetic one moment and completely mobile the next. Movement in these patients could be triggered by external stimuli, and 15 to 20 percent of these patients also experienced oculogeric crisis, which is an involuntary upward deviation of the eyes that can persist anywhere from seconds to hours. These patients remained conscious for the entire duration of the crisis, but could not voluntarily move their eyes. So most of the time the eyes go up, so they're just looking up, but sometimes they roll back. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Awful. I wonder what that's like. Um, looking into the back of your head? Probably yeah. not great. <laughs> Do you think it's just black or you think you see your brain? No, I think it's black. I think it's just nothing. But then you're like, am I blind? What's going on? Right, like you you have no idea what's happening. Yeah. The psychiatric effects of EL presented in about 30% of patients and included changes in mood, feelings of euphoria, increased sexual drive, hallucinations, joviality, silliness, and excessive puns. (laughs) (laughs) I do like that. (laughs) I mean, it really just sounds like they're on acid. It does. But, so this is what I found out that, like, stuck with me. I don't know why. The use of excessive puns is known to sometimes indicate brain damage. What? Yeah. So, like, even in other, like, if they don't have this disease, sometimes if you can't stop making puns, there's something wrong with your brain. Like, that's a symptom of some kind of brain disorder. Isn't that weird? That is weird. It's also, so strange. <laughs> and you love puns. Yeah, I do love puns. You do. <gasps> maybe it's maybe I have brain damage. You I'll might. You might out. have something going on with you. <laughs> Except you don't have a uh, joviality, so we're fine. Yeah, yeah. Yep. I'm not jovial. <laughs> so when I there... turn and I get really, really happy, that's when you need to worry. Yeah, that's that's when. <laughs> Where Uh-oh, we know that you something wrong with your brain. Yep. And there's actually a psychiatric disorder called Wietzelsucht, or probably Wietzelsucht, that is marked by a tendency to make puns. <laughs> like, that's, that's the disorder. It's, it's, they also call it dad. Dadding. Yes, all dads have this brain <laughs> yeah. issue. So sad. <laughs> <laughs> These people that write, like, greeting cards and decorative dish towels, they need to get checked immediately yeah, immediately right now <laughs> or maybe that's what they do they they wait until someone has the disorder and, then and they, they go. scoop them up from the mental yeah, hospital the hallmark the hallmark place this is them. the this like, is hallmark human trafficking yeah so and it's disgusting it is we have to stop it we should start a foundation so children with podcasts EL... against hallmark Exactly. Children with EL experienced more pronounced psychiatric effects of the disease than adults did, including self-mutilation. You ready for this? This one is eight year old girl from puns. Well, you know, on one end you have puns, on the other you have self-mutilation. Yeah. How it's sucky is it to be like, yeah, I make puns all the time, and then another person's like, well, I cut my fingers and toes off. Yeah, that's what it's like. It's really really bad. So one eight-year-old girl 
who had been diagnosed with EL, extracted all of her teeth, <gasps> and then she self-inuculated both of her eyes. What's that? That's when you pop them out. <gasps> you remove them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So but she it is... must have been so much, like, she must have been in so much pain. She just couldn't help it? Yeah. Well, she had this urge to, to do it, and I'm sure... Part of the disorder is you're so drawn to do it that you don't really feel the pain as much. Right. Either that or your pain sensor is overridden by the, right, the, the urge. Need. It's yeah. like it's like when people pluck out their eyelashes. I'm always like, isn't that painful? But the need yeah. to do it because of your anxiety it overrides or whatever, it. Yeah. Overrides and it. I, you just gotta do it. And I used to have um, trichotillomania. Mm-hmm. And you pull a lot, out your hair. Yes, which is why I have really thin hair now. And I, like, when it was really bad, I never tried to pull it out from the root, but I didn't mind when it happened, you know? Yeah. So it was, ugh, it was gross. Yeah, some people have, like, skin, like, like picking anxieties, too, where they pick at their... I used to, when I was a kid and I was really anxious, I used to pinch myself. Mm. So I would just have tiny little pinch Pinch marks marks, all over the place. Yeah, I still... Which isn't... Pinching isn't that painful, but it's not, like, a pleasant No, no, it's You know not. what I mean? Yeah, and I still, like... I love picking at my skin now, too, but I try to, yeah. you know... You gotta try to fight the OCD. Yeah. I so, mean, like, I'll pop some pimples, but I oh, won't I pick love, at myself. I love doing that. I feel like I that's do it a on my... different... Yeah, 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 I do it. Yeah. I do it shake. Oh. Yeah. It's my fave, which is fucking gross, but I acknowledge <laughs> that it's gross. <laughs> yeah, it is gross. But also yeah. men don't take care of their skin as well as women. So, like, it's I don't true. have a lot of, like, Jake's nose is filled with blackheads. <gasps> I love doing So, like, doing that I just love popping them because he doesn't, like, exfoliate or anything. Yeah, so they're just in there ready so for the they're just there, season. yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mike gets a lot on his, on his, um, on his butt. <laughs> yeah he gets nope. little red red ones on his butt um that this may be the grossest thing we've talked about all episode <laughs> so treatment for el consists mainly of treating the specific symptoms because they have no idea how to cure it right because the cause is a mystery there's no particular treatment for the disease itself so again it's purely the symptoms. There's no consistent effective treatment for the acute stages of EL, although some patients who were treated with steroids saw some improvement. There's also this drug called levodopa or L-dopa, which is like the Spanish version, I guess. It sounds like what like an old aunt would call like weed. <laughs> A disobedient Are you doing that diet. L-dopa? Yes, also. <laughs> yes. So it's actually an anti-Parkinson's drug and was used to treat patients with severe cases of EL. But unfortunately, these patients eventually built up a tolerance to the drug. And it got to the point where the levels required were too much for the human body to process. Oh my God. Yeah. And so the treatment was discontinued. There are a bunch of theories. Yes. There are theories as to what causes EL, although the disease has never been fully traced or mapped. Do people still get it to this day? So this is why I picked it for an unexplained event, because barely ever. There was one huge spike back in von Economo's time, and it basically fell off ever since. So some believe it to be related to the streptococcal virus, strep throat. Mm. And others believe... Uh-oh. Huh? I get stripped a lot. Uh-oh. Me too. 
Oh, here it um, comes. Just kidding. My tonsils were taking out. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't um, And others think that this epidemic lasted from 1915 to 1926, that it was somehow related to the 1919 influenza epidemic because it was kind of this precursor to it and then it lingered so the two diseases could be related. Mm-hmm. Some medical professionals think that EL could be a NMDA receptor encephalitis and have advocated for all patients suspected to be suffering from it to be tested for NMDA receptor encephalitis. Mm -hmm. Problem is, a lot of these tests weren't available when the epidemic happened. So NMDA receptor... Yeah, I can imagine. (laughs) Yeah, like they couldn't test any of these. NMDA receptor encephalitis is a form of encephalitis that occurs when antibiotics bodies in one's own body attack NMDA receptors in the brain. Yeah. So kind of think of lupus, similar to that. Or like it always reminds me of my mom who when she was getting her pancreas done for like the, so my mom has pancreatic division. Mm -hmm. So like parts of her pancreas collapse in on themselves. And so you have to stick like a metal, basically like a metal band to keep it open. Yeah. It's kind of like a stent for your pancreas. Exactly. Yeah. But after a while, her body was reacting to it. And so it thought whatever the pancreas would produce was an enemy like uh, so it, yeah. it started to mm-hmm. attack its own body yeah that's an issue that's, that's like mm-hmm. an that's an autoimmune issue yes exactly yeah. my mom has a mm-hmm. that's how they found out that my mom actually has an autoimmune disease which mm-hmm. is why her she has pancreatic pancreas. division and pancreatitis yeah that it all a lot started of with it yeah but they didn't know that until they realized what was happening but yeah. that's crazy yeah. But it, it reminds me of, like, the, because at one point this was brought up, which is the only reason I know about it. Mm-hmm. For yeah. some reason they, they were talking about it, because I guess it's similar or something. Yeah. Or can, one can lead to the other or something like that. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. So these NMDA receptors are an important part of the regulation of synaptic plasticity and memory function in the brain. So if you also think about muscle memory, so these things intercept the synaptic nerves, and that's why you get, like, frozen in place Mm -hmm. or you can't stop twitching yeah yeah autopsies were performed on several encephalitis lethargica patients after death and examinations of their brains revealed hyperamic meninges or an increase of blood flow to the brain tissue the brains were soft and had an excessive accumulation of fluid in the intercellular spaces of tissue they also had reddish discoloration of the brain stem economo noted in his studies that the upper midbrain substantia nigra basal ganglia pons medulla and thalamus all showed abnormalities that conformed with the symptoms of the disease that manifested when the patient was alive so basically their actions and symptoms correlated to abnormalities in those specific parts of the brain. Gotcha. Economo also noted that the blood vessels had lymphocytic infiltration, which is an increase of lymph cells and widespread hemorrhagic and inflammatory lesions. These traits suggested that an acute infection was present in the brain. In patients with chronic encephalitis lethargica, the brain showed modest degrees of atrophy 
Upon examination, there was old and new inflammation present in many patients, which suggested the presence of a persistent infection in the brain tissue. Neurofibrillary tangles, which are found in dementia patients, were found in one EL patient who had post and syphilitic Parkinsonism, but no signs of dementia. These and NFTs, which are the neurofibrillary tangles, are found in conjunction with various degenerative neurological diseases. According to case studies, two patients in Vienna manifested the disease in the same manner. Both began to fall asleep or freeze in place in the middle of everyday activities, such as eating or working. Narcolepsy was not a recognized illness at the time, though some EL patients exhibited signs of narcolepsy while in various phases of EL. Economo described the state, quote, to look at these patients, one would suppose them to be in a state of profound secondary dementia. Emotions are scarcely noticeable in the face, but they are mentally intact. During the EL epidemic, most patients were under 40 years old and most were male. 50% of patients were between the ages of 10 and 30. There were higher incidents of the disease among Jewish populations and among native South Africans, Indians, and Filipinos. I wonder what kind of Jewish... Because I, I know, know Ashkenazi, Ashkenazi or, or has a lot of issues. We are not a genetically than, blessed yeah. people. You are <laughs> I will not say made that. to last. And we are not. Like it's like if you believe in God, God made you first. And they were like, this will be the practice run. They'll all die yeah. in like 20 years. But this is just the practice. And then he was like, a hundred years later, he was like, holy shit, these people just keep living. Yeah, we, we persevere. We are scrappy. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's because we believe we're the chosen people and we just stick to our pool. Yeah. Our pool exactly. of horrible disease. <laughs> God, were we clean during the plague. Oh, yeah. So... Large cities and industrial centers seem to have more cases of EL than rural areas, but some believe this is just because there weren't as many medical facilities in rural areas in general and less people. So, you know, it's not it's not a direct correlation. At first, it was theorized that the patients, because they were mainly soldiers fighting in World War I, had been exposed to some kind of chemical warfare that had caused the strange condition. No gastrointestinal disturbances were found in patients, leading researchers to rule out environmental and toxicological causes. Viral and bacterial infections, as well as autoimmunity, are the most supported theoretical cases of EL. The number of people affected by EL during the epidemic at the beginning of the 20th century is unknown, but the most generous estimations put the figure at over a million patients. Holy shit. Yeah. Many cases went unreported because the disease was not a recognized illness in all countries. One encephalitis lethargica patient, wealthy businessman William Matheson, established the Matheson Commission for the Study of Epidemic Encephalitis out of New York. Matheson hoped that the commission could study the disease and find a cure within two years. The commission existed from 1927 to 1940 when it was defunded wow. without having found the cure for EL. Well, that's a the long commission time. Yeah, two years, my ass. Yeah. The commission did publish several surveys and reports from the 1920s and 30s, however, and documented 52,781 cases from 14 countries. 
It is estimated that because so few countries were included in the survey, about 50 to 75% of cases went unreported. Cases of encephalitis lethargica dropped dramatically after 1928, though the disease was thought to have died out in the decades since the epidemic. Several cases have been reported worldwide since the 1930s, the most recent having occurred in 2002. A study was conducted between 1999 and 2002 and was published in 2006. The study included 20 patients ranging in age from 2 years old to 69. Researchers found that 55% of the patients observed had suffered from an infection shortly before the disease manifested. These infections included upper respiratory tract infections and tonsillitis, like we were saying, uh, strep throat. 95% of patients experienced sleep disturbance, including hypersomnolence, insomnia, or sleep aversion. The somnolent patients could be roused without difficulty but would fall asleep if not stimulated. Some had vivid nightmares and experienced sleepwalking. 55% of the patients also exhibited dyskinetic movement disorders and 85% experienced psychiatric disorders including, this is a long list, mutism, depression, apathy, compulsive touching, aggression, catatonia, panic attacks, paranoia, obsessive compulsive disorder, and trichotillomania. Other symptoms among the 20 patients included motor tics, facial grimacing, dystonic jaw, dystonic posturing, vocal tics, hyperventilation, seizures, hiccough, pupillary light abnormality, memory loss, paralysis of the eyes, and pinpoint pupils. Despite the advances in medical science and immune-mediated movement, there has never been a definitive answer as to what causes encephalitis lethargica and what could successfully treat it. This means that when someone contracts the disease today, they have a 50% chance of dying from the disease oh and may God. be subjected to treatments that will not cure the illness. The extreme cases result in psychiatric affliction and sometimes total and spontaneous paralysis, during which the patient is completely conscious but unable to move or communicate. The short-lived EL epidemic has largely been forgotten by the general public, and the disease remains an unexplainable and mysterious rare occurrence. And that is the encephalitis lethargica pandemic of the early 1900s. That's crazy. I didn't realize it was going to have so many, like, 50-50, you're going to die is a crazy disease. Like, it's, I just thought, not like, a it made you. statistic. Yeah. <laughs> I assumed it just made you tired. Yeah, tired. Sleepy for a little while, and then you're fine again. But it's like, no, you might end up pulling out your teeth and your eyes. Yeah, so. it sounds like such a cute disease, you know? Right. Sleepy. Sleepy it's sick. a sleepy sickness. And when I was researching this, I like had to be careful to make sure I typed in sleepy sickness and not sleeping sickness, which I covered on a previous episode. And that was mm -hmm. what inspired uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Right. Yeah, that's a different thing. Okay, okay. I am ready for yours. <clears throat> okay, I am doing... <laughs> I forgot what episode I was on. Sorry. I'm doing Boeing 777 better known as Malaysian Airlines Flight 370. Ooh. This so is pretty recent, on, too. Yeah. On March 8th, 2014, hundreds of families woke up to find that their family members had vanished. Early that morning, their loved ones had boarded Malaysian Airlines Flight 370, and now all of them and the flight was gone. So to start this research out, I went and I visited the wiki 
about missing flights from the 21st 70 or 21st century. Mm-hmm. And I actually realized that most of the flights were small with only one or two people on board. Oh. Um, the second biggest flight to disappear in the 21st century was Antonov, a 32 in no. I don't know what this is supposed to say. I don't know enough about planes to decipher. Oh, it's like Antonov a Antonov AN-32 is like the the flight. It's an aircraft that belonged to the Indian Air Force, which disappeared with 29 people on board. Oh, wow. Um, To put that in perspective, though, over eight times that many people went missing on the Amelation Air Flight. Because it was a commercial flight, right? Yep. Yeah. So on, on March 8th, 2014, 227 passengers, including five children, boarded Flight 370 in Kuala Lumpur. The passengers were accompanied by 12 crew members, and they were headed to Beijing. Mm. They took off at 12.32 a.m., and everything seemed fine. So it was an overnight airline. They were supposed to arrive that morning. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know how to pronounce his name. F-A-R-I-Q. Farik. Farik. Hamid. The first officer was flying the airport uh, airplane. Mm-hmm. He was 27 years old, and it was actually the last training flight for him. Oh. Uh, after this flight, if it had landed successfully, he would have been like a full-fledged pilot. Mm-hmm. His trainer was the pilot in command, a man named Zahiri Ahmed Shah, S-H-A-H, Shah. Yeah. Um, he was 53 years old and was one of the most senior captains at the Malaysian Airlines. He was married and had three adult children. He lived in a gated development, owned two houses. Um, In his first house, he had an elaborate Microsoft flight simulator, and he flew it frequently and often posted to online forums about his hobby. So all of this is to say that he was very successful and good at his job. Yeah. So then there were ten Malaysian flight attendants and the mix of passengers. Thirty-eight were Malaysian and in descending order, the others came from Indonesia, Australia, India, France, the United States, Iran, Ukraine, Canada, New Zealand, the Netherlands, Russia, and Taiwan. Wow, so all over. Yep. So, um, first officer Farik flew the airplane while Captain Zahari handled the radios. Zahari's transmission were a bit unusual. At 1.01 in the morning, he radioed that they had leveled off at about 35,000 feet. Hmm. This is odd because the norm is to report leveling an altitude, not arriving at one. Oh, okay. Which I guess is different, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, at 1.08 in the morning, the flight crossed the Malaysian coastline and set out across the South China Sea in the direction of Vietnam. Sahari again reported the plane's level at 35,000 feet. Hmm. 11 minutes later, the airplane closed in on a waypoint near the start of the Vietnamese air traffic jurisdiction. So the controller at Kuala Lumpur Center radioed, Malaysian 370, contact Ho Chi Minh 120.9, good night. Zahiri answered, good night, Malaysian 370. Hmm. So that's just to say they were crossing airline traffic, so now it wasn't Kuala Lumpur's jurisdiction it was the vietnamese one so yeah. they just always have to cross over mm-hmm. um with their radius yeah so that makes he sense. um he did not read back the frequency as he should have but otherwise the transmission sounded normal 
and these would be the last words ever radioed from Flight 370. The pilots never checked in with Ho Chi Minh or answered any of the subsequent attempts to raise them. So, a little bit of backstory. A primary radar, I'm going to talk a lot about radars coming up, so a Mm -hmm. primary radar simply relies on a simple raw ping off of an object in the sky. So you could have a radar... Like, tall buildings might have one to make sure there's no one around. It doesn't tell you what it is or where it's heading. It's just, like, there's something in the sky. Yeah. Air traffic control systems use what is known as a secondary radar. It's dependent on a transponder signal that is transmitted by each airplane and contains richer information. Hmm. Um, Like the airplane's identity and altitude. Five seconds after MH370 crossed into the Vietnamese airspace... The symbol representing its transponder dropped from the screens of Malaysian air traffic control. And 37 seconds later, the entire airplane disappeared from the secondary radar completely. Huh. It seemed to vanish at 1.21 a.m. It had taken off 39 minutes before. So they mm-hmm. were only in the air for 39 minutes before oh, wow. it fell off of the radar. Mm-hmm. But the controller in Kuala Lumpur was dealing with other traffic issues elsewhere and wasn't really looking at his map and so when he finally noticed that they were gone he simply assumed that the airplane was handed off to Ho Chi Minh somewhere out beyond the range so Uh that's what the issue was that's why like there was some delay Mm -hmm. and it, it would be totally normal for them to head off they check in with Ho Chi Minh and then eventually they'd fall off of the radar because Mm -hmm. it's not in their jurisdiction anymore they don't have radar out there yeah so Um, At the same time, the Vietnamese controller saw the MH370 cross into their airspace and then disappear from radar. However, they misunderstood a formal agreement by which Ho Chi Minh was supposed to inform Kuala Lumpur immediately if an airplane that had been handed off was more than five minutes late checking in. Oh, okay. So, they never reported it to Kuala Lumpur, though. Um, instead, they tried repeatedly to contact the airplane, but no one ever answered. By the time they picked up the phone to inform Kuala Lumpur, 18 minutes had passed since the MH370's disappearance from the radar screens. Uh-oh. So for 18 minutes, no one in Kuala Lumpur knew it was missing. Yeah. So what ensued after that was a mess of confusion and incompetence, which some said led to the ultimate mystery that is... The missing flight of Malaysia aircraft. Yeah. So Kuala Lumpur is notified when a plane goes missing. Normally, what happens is a rescue coordination center for whatever country it is is sent out. Mm-hmm. So you know the the radio tower is notified immediately. That happens. So Kuala Lumpur's aeronautical rescue coordination center should have been notified within an hour of the disappearance. But so they you know weren't. you check. Yeah, you check a few times to make sure it's not, because I guess radars can be finicky if you fly too high or too low sometimes. Yeah, like, and I'm sure there's, like, some it, kind of air disturbance, like if there's a storm Yeah, or so like it can that. take a minute to, like, if the plane flies low, the radar might, it might show that it disappeared and then reappear. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, they give you an hour. However, by 2.30 in the morning, it still, n- no one had been no- notified. Finally, at 6.32 in the morning, an emergency response team was put into effect. Over four hours had passed since the plane had disappeared off the radar. Holy shit, that's a big ball drop for them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh So the search for the airplane was 
initially concentrated in the South China Sea between Malaysia and Vietnam mm-hmm. because, of course, their first thought was it crashed into the sea. Yeah. You know. The search was conducted by 34 ships, 28 aircrafts from seven different countries. Wow. But MH370 was nowhere near there. Within a matter of days, primary radar records salvaged from air traffic control computers and partially corroborated by the secret Malaysian Air Force data, (laughs) revealed that as soon as MH370 disappeared from the secondary radar, it turned sharply southwest and flew back across the Malay Peninsula and banked around the island of Penang. Huh. Penang? Yeah. P-E-N-A-N-G? Penang? Yeah. Yeah, I would say Penang. From there, it flew northwest up to straight the Strait of Malacca and out across the Andaman Sea. I haven't read these names out loud, so. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you just say it in your head. You're like, I know what those words are. That's easy Um, enough. I know words. (laughs) I can read. The part of the flight took more than an hour to accomplish and suggested that it was not a standard case of hijacking because it took so long. Um, nor was it an accident or pilot suicide scenario that anyone encountered because the plane didn't just immediately crash. Like, there are mountains and islands and obviously the whole entire ocean to crash into. So investigators were lost. They didn't know what what was happening. It turned out that MH370 had continued to link up intermediately with a geostationary Indian Ocean satellite operated by Inmarsat, a commercial vendor in London. For six hours after the airplane disappeared. Hmm. So they were they were connecting intermittently with that, that signal. Um, yeah. From what I understand, it wasn't a secondary radar, so they couldn't be like, it's a plane from Malaysia. It was just like connecting to the, the satellite. Oh, um, okay. So, but they know that the plane was up and running then. Mm-hmm. They know it hadn't crashed, basically. Yeah. So they knew it was in the air. And mm-hmm. capable of connecting to something. Yes. And it was it had to be near that geostationary Indian Ocean satellite. Mm-hmm. It was just operated by a, co- a country stationed in London. Uh-huh. But, so it took a while for people to be like, oh, this is all connected because... That makes sense. You know, everything's all over the place, basically. During those six hours, it's presumed to have remained in high-speed, high-altitude cruising flight. But they don't actually know any of this. There's just no information. And from where, I guess, it's pinging on the satellites, it seems like it's flying at normal altitude and speed. But mm-hmm. there's no actual, you know, it's not like they had eyes on the plane. Yeah. But, it's it's um, what they can assume from what they know. Yes. So the link-ups that happen between a satellite and a aircraft are called handshakes. Mm-hmm. And they're just electronic blimps. Um, yeah. They're just, like, routine connections. They happen automatically, and they're like a whisper of communication, one one person put it. It's normally made so that people, like, the reason it automatically happens between satellites is for, like, passenger entertainment, Mm. cockpit text, automated maintenance reports, stuff like that. Okay. Um, But all of that had been switched off in the plane. So none of that was available. Mm -hmm. So the plane was still connecting. But that wasn't reaching through. Mm-hmm. And they know that it was turned off from the plane? Yes. They okay. know it was turned off because the only way to do it would be inside the plane. Mm, okay. I mean, obviously it would happen too if the plane had crashed, mm-hmm. but they wouldn't be getting the satellite if the plane had crashed. 
Yes. So okay. so the plane is up, it's running, it's flying, but n- someone had turned off the satellite so that no one can watch TV or send a text or try to make a phone call or anything. Mm-hmm. All told, there were seven link-ups or handshakes. Um, okay. Two were automatic by the airplane. Five others were initiated by in Merced, the oh, ground okay. station. So, so after the first that. two, they were trying to, yeah. Mm-hmm. They were like, what's happening? Mm-hmm. Um, there were also two satellite phone calls that went unanswered, but they provided additional data. Okay. Um, so I guess they tried to call in or mm-hmm. something, but... Nothing ever happened with that. There's a lot of data I read about the plane, but basically the most important thing to note are the arcs of the plane, which is a measurement of the transmission time to and from the airplane. Mm -hmm. And therefore they can determine the plane's distance from the satellite. Okay. It doesn't pinpoint a single location, but rather an equidistant location. So roughly like a circular set of possibilities. So it can tell you it was 30 miles away from the satellite, but it can't tell you in what direction, basically. Okay. The most important arc here is the seventh arc because it's the last one. Mm. And it leads to where the airplane could have possibly ended up. Because if it had passed out of the Indian Sea satellite, it would have linked up with another satellite automatically the way it did with the Indian one. And it Mm -hmm. never did. They know it didn't just fly away. So the seventh arc is the most important. The seventh arc stretches from Central Asia into the north to the vicinity of Antarctica in the south like the south part of Antarctica. Oh, okay. And it was crossed by MH370 at 8.19 in the morning. They were still flying, flying at yeah. 8.19 in the morning. That's a, such a long flight. Oh, my yes, gosh. Yes, they had been flying at that point for eight hours, over eight hours. Wow. So calculations of likely flight paths placed the airplane's intersection with the seventh arc in Kazakhstan. Huh. If the airplane had turned north. But if the airplane had turned south, it would have ended up in the Indian Ocean. Okay. There's so, nothing there. There's no islands, no land. It would have been in it would the Indian have been, Ocean. Yeah. So most people and the technical analysis indicates that the airplane turned south. So most people okay. assume it ended up in the Indian Ocean. In the Ocean. After six hours, the Doppler data indicated a steep descent, as much as five times greater than a normal descent rate. So basically the airplane started going down very fast. Quickly, yeah. Um, yeah. Within a minute or two of crossing the seventh arc, the plane dived into the ocean, possibly shedding components before impact. Mm. Judging from the electronical or the electronic de- evidence, this was not an attempt to control at a water landing, but a deliberate dive. Yeah. The airplane would have fractured instantly into a million pieces. But no one knew where the impact had occurred, much less why, and no one had the slightest bit of physical evidence to confirm the satellite's interpretations to infer that they were correct. So basically at this point, we know the seventh arc is reaching from whatever point all the way to Antarctica. Mm -hmm. But they can tell by the distance from the satellite they were either in Kazakhstan or the Indian Ocean. And and they can tell that the, the... airplane took that deep dive Mm -hmm. if it took a deep dive in the indian ocean basically it split apart into a million pieces and that's the story yeah but they can't say that was for sure they can't say why it did that or if it even crashed it could have taken a dive and then tried to like they don't really know but after that deep dive it it seems as if the plane crashed there's no Mm -hmm. other 
satellite connections, Doppler radar, nothing. Yeah. It, so, there's no evidence to prove it didn't crash, so that's the most likely scenario. Yes. Exactly. Less than a week after the disappearance, the Wall Street Journal published the first reports about the satellite transmission, indicating that the airplane most likely stayed aloft for hours after going silent. Malaysians officials eventually admitted that this account was true, but I guess to cover up some, because it took them so long to do X, Y, and Z, they were not very forthright about it all. Mm-hmm. The Malaysian regime was said to be one of the most corrupt in the region oh. as well. And it was also proving itself to be furative, fearful, and unreliable in its investigation of the flight. Mm-hmm. Um, accident investigators, because of this accident, investigators were dispatched from Europe, Australia, and the United States. And they were shocked by the disarray they had encountered. Because the Malaysians withheld what they knew the initial sea searchers were concentrated in the wrong place oh. up until the malaysians were like yes that's that's what happened everyone was searching in the south china sea still oh no so for weeks people were still like they crashed in the sea once the radar was turned off yeah because only the malaysian people had the evidence that it was elsewhere and they weren't talking so nope so, Malaysians eventually told the truth, mostly because no one found any debris in the South China Sea, and they were like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. So, Malaysians told the truth, and they used this to identify the airplane's approximate location, and people were searching for the black box, which I yeah. heard over and over again all through these weeks. Like, we gotta find the black box, and I never knew why it was so important, but mm-hmm. basically, the black box creates a whole map. As, it's, as the airplane's running, it can tell you how fast it was going, mm-hmm. the, how many dives it takes, if it stops, if it starts, how the airplane's doing, if it's shaking, if it's doing well, if there was turbulence, anything. Yeah, so more um, than just so, a recording of what is going on, like the audio of what's going on, which is what a lot yes. of people think it is. Yes, but it does do that. Mm-hmm. It does also do so they can hear the audio, anything that's going on inside the... But also it creates a map so people can hear, like, understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. Because apparently also the first part of the... When the black box crashes, a lot of the part that gets damaged first is the audio. Oh, part yeah. Of it because mm-hmm. it's so easy to get damaged. Mm-hmm. But it is creating a map of what's happening. So okay. the underwater search... For the black boxes, because I think there are two in every airplane, I believe. Uh-huh. Um, ultimately centered on a narrow swath of ocean thousands of miles away from where they are originally looking. Oh, no. But even that narrow swath was a big place because it's the fucking ocean. <laughs> it's so, huge. <laughs> so it actually took them two years to find the black boxes. They haven't found the black boxes, sorry. Uh-huh. But... From another flight, it took two years to find the black boxes from Air France 447, which crashed into the Atlantic Ocean mm-hmm. um, from from a flight from Rio de Janeiro to Paris in 2009. And the searchers knew exactly where to look when yeah, they were looking so for those black boxes. It just shows how impossible how it, impossible it is to it find these. Yes. It took them two years to find that. And they had, like, I think it was, like, a 40-mile radius. Mm-hmm. And they, it still took them two years. Yeah. So about six months after the airplane went missing, a municipal beach cleanup crew on the French island of, I mean, it looks like Reunion, but it has a bunch of weird French accents. So it's probably <laughs> like 
Daniel Nguyen. Yes, that's um, exactly what it is. <laughs> came upon a torn piece of airfoil about six feet long that seemed to have washed ashore. The foreman of the crew, a man named Johnny Begu, realized that it might have come from the missing airplane, um, uh. from a missing airplane, but he didn't know which one. Mm-hmm. So he briefly considered making it into a memorial and just setting it aside on an adjacent lawn and planting some flowers all around it. Yeah. But instead, he called a local radio station with the news. Probably um, the better decision. <laughs> yeah. So a crew of people showed up and took the piece away. They were from the gendarmes. I guess it's like the army or the police there. Mm-hmm. And it was quickly determined to be part of the missing of. <gasps> A Boeing 777, the missing flight. Uh Uh-huh. A control surface called a flap apron that attached to the trailing edge of the wing had the serial number on it, and that's how they knew it came from Uh, MH370. That makes sense. Yeah. So in June 2016, a man named Blaine Gibson, who had been searching for answers, turned all of his attention to the remote northeastern shores of Madagascar after tracking where he thought the rest of the debris may have washed up. So after this part of the plane washed up on the island, people then could track, like, the water, mm-hmm, like, the, the ocean's currents and mm-hmm. stuff. Um, so he determined that they probably would end up by Madagascar. So that's where he was like. Mm-hmm. Um, it turned out to be the mother load. Gibson says he found three pieces on the first day and mm-hmm. another two a few days later. The following week on the beach, eight miles away, three more pieces were delivered to him. Wow. Um, so it, it goes on, like, ever since people have been finding things. And it got around that Gibson would pay $40 a piece mm-hmm. to whoever gave him MH370 debris to, like, the village that went by. So the whole entire village went out and searched. Yeah. Because apparently it's just $40 there is, like, I mean, $40 is enough money for me to search a beach, too. But oh, yeah. also it's a lot of money there. Mm-hmm. A lot of debris washed up that had nothing to do with the airplane, Mm -hmm. but of those pieces, several dozen have been determined to be from MH370, or likely to be from MH370. Mm -hmm. Gibson has been responsible for the discovery of roughly a third of the plane. (gasps) That's a lot. Oh my gosh. But of course, some pieces are still being investigated Mm -hmm. because they can tell it came from like a similar plane, but is it that plane? You know? Yeah. Gibson's influence has been very large, obviously. David Griffin, which is one of the main investigators of what happened to the plane, worried that the perceived debris patterns may now be statistically skewed toward Madagascar. Mm-hmm. And that points that the plane might have crashed further north for some reason. Oh. And that the plane might be further north, like most of the other plane. That idea was so big, that worry was so big, that it... It was given the name the Gibson effect, which is the worry that something is, I guess, it's almost like FOMO. Yeah. But it's it's like the worry that what you're looking for, when you find a bit of it and you're like, oh, I found the right place or I found, you know, is actually further away than you think. Oh. Is basically what the Gibson effect is. Yeah. So the fact still remains that after five years, no one has yet been able to work backwards from where the debris has washed ashore and trace it to a point of origin in the South Indian Ocean. Hmm. So everyone's like, this is the plane, but how did it get here from the Indian Ocean? You know, like, they can't determine a point. So Gibson still holds on hope, finding new debris that'll explain the disappearance, 
uh, charred wiring indicating a fire maybe or shrap metal peppered evidence of a missile strike. None of this has been found, but he hopes to find it. You know, mm-hmm. he just basically they just need that one thing that's like, oh, there was a fire. Oh, there were gunshots. Yeah, know? like some something to point to the cause. Yes, something that would tell why the airplane flew for six hours until the flight suddenly came to an end. Mm-hmm. There were no efforts by someone at the controls to bring the airplane down gently, and there is still a chance, Gibson thinks, of finding a message. Something equivalent to a message in a bottle, a note someone scribbled before they died um, mm-hmm. in the last moments of the doom airplane. Yeah. So what could have happened to the plane, basically? Three official investigations were launched in the wake of the disappearance. The first was the largest, most rigorous, and most expensive by Australia. It focused on locating the main debris in order to retrieve the airplane's flight data and voice recordings. However, this search... Used It used advanced underwater surveillance vehicles and covered a new section of the 7th Arc. They really didn't find anything. It cost $160 million. It was later taken upon by an independent group. But after a few months, that too ended in failure. They didn't really find anything in this search. Mm-hmm. The second official investigation belonged to the Malaysian police and amounted to background checks of everyone on the airplane as well as some of their friends. It's hard to know the true extent of those discoveries because the Malaysian people are so they don't want to share basically yeah they're Um, secretive yeah they're secret secrets (laughs) the report was stamped secret and withheld even from other Malaysian investigators but Mm -hmm. after it was leaked by someone on the inside it basically found that nothing crazy like no one on the plane was secretly a spy or anything although there was some stuff that was like blacked out about the captain that still to this day no one knows what that information was Mm -hmm. but the third official investigation was the accident inquiry which basically just wanted to find the liability to see if it was the airplane's fault Mm -hmm. or the people on board the airplane fault yeah so it was led by the malaysian government and it was basically a mess the police and military hated working on it government ministry Streets saw it as a risk. Foreign specialists who were sent to assist began retreating almost as soon as they arrived. Mm. And an American expert referring to International Aviation Protocol said Annex 13, which is like what the the whole thing was called, is tailored for accident investigations in confident democracies, but in countries like Malaysia with insecure and autocratic bureaucracies and with airlines that are either government owned or seen as a matter of national prestige it always makes for a pretty poor fit Mm. so the in the end the investigation produced a 495 page report oh wow and it described the 777 systems the boeing 777 Mm -hmm. um all of their systems and that there were meant like Everything was fine, basically. It was like, yeah, we couldn't find anything wrong. Mm -hmm. However, not all the plane has been found, so they can't really say for sure basically anything. Um, So a British woman who blogs under the name of Saucy Sailoress (laughs) and does terror readings for hire was... um, I trust her completely. Yes. Around the South, uh, Southern Asia with her husband and dog. (laughs) This is her life. They live on a sailboat. I'm jealous, so... Yeah. A lot of informal investigations have happened. And one of them were from this lady who, early in the morning, she said she spotted 
like one night she saw the MH370 disappear and it looked like a cruise missile was coming at her. The missile morphed into a low-flying airplane with a well-lit cockpit bathed in a strange orange glow and trailing smoke. As it flew by, she concluded that it was a suicide mission against a Chinese naval fleet farther out in sea. Um, When she saw this and, like, told her husband about it, no one even knew that the MH370 had disappeared. Huh. Yeah. An Australian has been claiming for several years to have found the MH370 by means of Google Earth in shallow waters and intact. Yet he refuses to disclose the lake location while he works on crowdfunding an expedition. Mm-hmm. On the internet, you can find claims that the airplane has been found intact in the Cambodian jungle, that it was seen landing in an Indonesian river, that it flew into a time warp and was sucked into a black hole. <laughs> um, one scenario has the airplane flying off to attack the American military base in Diego Garcia before getting shot down. A recent online report that Captain Zahari had been discovered alive and was lying in a Taiwanese hospital with amnesia. Um, A New York-based writer named Jeff Wise has hypothesized that one of the electronic systems on board the airplane may have reprogrammed to provide false data, indicating a turn south into the Indian Ocean when, in fact, the airplane had turned north towards Kazakhstan. He's the hmm. only one who says what happens if the airplane turns north. He's the only person. Everyone the only else person is like, yep, that it even considers out. it. Yep. So he calls this the spoof scenario and has elaborated extensively on it. Most recently in a 2019 ebook, although, you know, I fucking didn't read that ebook. <laughs> but you can get it for free, so it's probably not that good. Anyway, he proposes that the <laughs> he proposes that the Russians might have stolen the airplane to create a distraction from the annexation of Crimea that was then underway. Wise's claim Wise claims that the debris found was all planted debris. Mm-hmm. So in 2017, Gibson arranged a formal mechanism for the transfer of debris. He would turn over any new finds to the authorities in Madagascar, who would hand it to the Malaysian honorary consul, who would pack it up and ship it to Kuala Lumpur for investigation and storage. Okay. Um, so the person in charge of all this was Hassanli Zahid Raza. On August 24th of that year, now this is just a strange thing to note, but on August 24th of that year, Zahid Raza was gunned down in his car by an assassin who escaped on a motorcycle and has never been found. What? A French language news account alleged that the consul had a shady past, but some people believe his killing may have had a connection to the MH370. Mm-hmm. Um, Gibson certainly assumes that there's a connection. However, the police investigation is still ongoing and they've never found the man. Mm-hmm. So there are a lot of questions, but also there are some answers about what happened on flight MH370. First, mm-hmm. the di- disappearance was an intentional act and is inconceivable that the known flight path accompanied by radio and electronic silence was caused by any combination of system failure or human error, computer glitch, or anything like that. Mm-hmm. It also wouldn't be caused by a bomb, war, or an act of God, um, pilot yeah. confusion, anything like that. Yeah. Second, despite theories, control of the plane was not seized remotely from within the electrical equipment bay, a space um, under the forward galley of the plane. Mm-hmm. Control was seized from inside the cockpit. This happened in the 20 minutes where the airplane leveled at 
35,000 feet from 1 in the morning to 125, where he radioed in and said he had leveled. Uh Uh-huh. A lot of people have said that maybe he was doing it, because remember I said that that was wrong, like most people didn't do that. Mm -hmm. A lot of people gather maybe he was doing it to try to get some help, like to throw people off without, like if someone took over the plane, it might have been a way to be like, something's wrong, but I can't say something's wrong, so I'm going to pretend I'm doing this, even though we all know I'm not supposed to be doing it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, an electrical engineer in Boulder, Colorado, named Mike Exner, has what I think is the best theory of what happened to the flight. Mm-hmm. He believes that during the turn south, the airplane climbed up to 40,000 feet, <gasps> feet close to its limits. During the yeah. maneuver, the passengers would have experienced G-forces, the feeling of being suddenly pressed back into the seat. Mm. Exner believes that the reason for the climb was to accelerate the effects of depressurizing the airplane, causing the rapid incapacitation and death of everyone in the cabin. An article in The Atlantic describes it this way. <clears throat> and this, I'm now quoting this. Uh-huh. An initial depressurization would have been an obvious way and probably the only way to subdue a potentially unruly cabin in an airplane that was going to remain in flight for hours to come. In the cabin, the effects would have gone unnoticed, but for the sudden appearance of the drop-down oxygen mass and perhaps the cabin's crew's use of the few portable units of similar design. None of these cabin masks were intended for more than 15 minutes of use during emergency descents to altitudes below 13,000 feet. They would have been of no value at a cruising altitude of 40,000 feet. The cabin occupants would have become incapacitated within a couple minutes, losing consciousness, and gently died without any choking or gasping for air. The scene would have been dimly lit by the emergency lights, with the dead belted into their seats, their faces nestled into their worthless oxygen masks dangling on tubes from the ceiling. Wow, that's so, a haunting picture. Yes, that's why I included the whole quote, because I was like, that's crazy. Yeah. So basically, they think that someone on the plane, a few people probably hijacked the plane, Mm -hmm. went up in the air. The pilots have more air than the the cabin does, Mm -hmm. so they cruised at an altitude until everyone was dead, and then they leveled back off at a normal altitude. Wow. And so they could do whatever the fuck they wanted, Mm -hmm. because everyone was dead on the flight already. Yeah. During the last minutes of the flight, MH370 was most likely flying on autopilot, cruising south into the night. Whoever was occupying the cockpit was active and alive. So was this a hijacking? The probability of a hijacking has some problems, though. The main one is that the cockpit door was fortified, electrically bolted, and surveyed by a video feed Mm -hmm. that the pilots could see. Also, less than two minutes passed between Zahari's casual goodnight Kuala Lumpur controller and the start of the diversion. Uh, um, so how would hijackers have known, like, that was the perfect time to take over the plane because there's an, a, a loss of transponder signal. Mm-hmm. So how would the hijackers have known to make their moon precisely during the handoff to Vietnamese air traffic control? Also, why would the pilots have not tried to transmit a distress call mm-hmm. because even if someone in the plane came in with guns and said we're going to kill everyone if you don't give us this plane we just have to drop something up whatever to get them to go to the back and sit so they could kill everyone it would have taken them a few minutes to get into the cockpit 
Mm-hmm. So a lot of people think one of the flight attendants, or not flight attendants, one of the pilots was behind it all. So no one really has any hard answers, but Blaine Gibson still searches for the families. On the beaches, Gibson has found a few backpacks and a large number of purses from the flight, all of which have been emptied, though. Um, The closest he has come to finding a note was on on a message written in Malay on an underside of a baseball cap found amongst the debris believed to be one of the families said it was their son's baseball cap. Mm-hmm. Um, translated, the message reads, To whom it may concern, my dear friend, meet me at the guest house later. Huh. And that's it. That's, that's it? All that's all we know? That's all we know. No one's ever found the black box. No, and... And no one knows why they stopped off and then... Because there was that stop they made. So some people think, okay, maybe someone hijacked it because they had to stop off for, like, drugs or whatever. Yeah. So they they kill everyone, they make that stop, and then they're like, well, now we have to go somewhere and crash the plane. Yeah. And so they fly anywhere. Maybe the people jumped out. Like, maybe the hijackers didn't even, maybe it wasn't a suicide mission. Maybe they jumped out, put it, they set it on autopilot to crash, and then they jump out. Yeah, it just seems like so much effort for something like that. And And almost 300 people died. Yeah, and what I remember from when this was going on was Courtney Love, do you remember this? No. When she said she had found the plane. Oh, yeah. On, like, Google Maps. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people keep saying, because a lot of people think it's still out there. Yeah. That, did, that And there's shout out to this show, which I haven't, I've only ever watched the first episode, but it's such a good idea for a show. It's, um, what's it called? It's called, like, Passenger or something. Mm-hmm. And it's about, it stars Chloe... Svengi? Yes. And it's about, basically, all these people land, and all these, like, police swarm them or whatever, and they're like, what's going on? What's going on? And they're like, you've been missing for the last five years. Uh, So all these people experience a normal flight. They're all, like, the first episode, you see them on the flight, and the captain goes on and, like, we're gonna be landing and whatever... And they all land, and they've been gone for five years, but none of them have aged. There's, like, a baby on the flight who hasn't aged, and no one has any memory of what happened these last five years. It's very, like, a lost. Yes. And I have to watch the rest of it, but I never did. (laughs) Yeah, that's crazy. I just remember her being like, I found the plane on Google Maps, and it's like, bitch, don't you think they've thought of that? Yeah. Oh, actually, sorry. I said the wrong Chloe. It's Chloe Grace Moretz. Oh, it's the younger one. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah, Yeah, it's crazy. That's like a very recent mystery that we'll probably never know what happened. No. I mean, I I really think someone hijacked it. Some people think aliens, of course. Some people think some people think that um it was still like they it's still out there that people are being those people were all kidnapped and like later on we're gonna hear people that they're being held for like almost criminal of war things for like mm-hmm. later on so if china get gotten a, like a war with us they could be like well we have five of those people on this plane give yeah. us x y and z and we'll give you back mm-hmm. yeah but, i heard there was something with some of the americans that were on it they were like scientists or yeah, a few people of them who were, could but... have been ransomed but also the thing is that in the aftermath of it no one came forward to claim it. You would think a hijacking would be claimed. Yeah. 
So Unless it was, why, like I said, where they're just trying to drop something off. Yeah. Like, they don't want the attention. You like, know it's what I mean? not a political thing or something that has to do with government agencies. Um, so that would make sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And something that happened, even with all of our technology, we can't yeah. figure it out. It's called Manifest, by the way. Sorry, I just looked. Oh, the the, the show. show's called Manifest. Yeah. Everyone should watch it. Anyway, but yeah, it's just like <laughs> one of those things that in the back of my head, I was like, this is boring. It's just a plane that's gone missing. But then when you hear all the things that like, you don't just lose. In my mind, I thought, oh, they were lost from radar and then they crashed into the sea. So I was like, oh, they just crashed into the ocean. Mm-hmm. But six hours to lose that, like control of a plane for six hours. It's like, what was happening? Yeah, it's. Nuts. And babies were on board who died, young kids. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was one father who was like, before any of the rubble or anything debris was found, there was one father who's like, I have to believe my son's alive until you give me proof he's not because I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, yeah. he was just either the place they were flying out of or a place in Beijing that they were going to has like a big pillar in the airport and it says on it, like, Malay Flight 370, always in our heart, we'll never forget you. Mm-hmm. And it affected, like, 12 countries. Yeah, there was a lot people of... People from all over the place. Yeah, a lot of people from different countries on there. And a lot of, like, it's not, oh, it was just kind of, like, these people. Like, people traveling for yeah. business. It was all kinds of people. All kinds of... You can go online. Um, CNN does a... Uh, like deep dive into all the people who were on the plane mm-hmm. and there was like a young couple on their honeymoon and this yeah. this retired couple who was just traveling for fun you know they've gotten to the place where they can travel and young like a young family and their baby who was visiting their family like these were just people that's why all the other ones are like all the other airplane disappearances are like somehow related to the military or government these are just as if you were flying to Disney and then you disappeared. Yeah, like, yeah. They're just going on vacation and then now they're gone. Yeah. When we've never found any trace besides those bags of those actual oh, people. And there's this story of this young guy and his girlfriend mm-hmm. who were flying to Beijing. He was an American. She was from Beijing, I think. Uh-huh. And they were going to meet her family. And for a long time, for hours after when the families were notified... They were on the manifest, but they had actually missed their flight by, like, 15 (gasps) minutes. Oh, that's awful. And so they survived. So, yeah, but so her, or everyone thought that they had died, that they were gone. Everyone thought they did (gasps) Yeah, and then they woke up, because the flight, they, like, went back to their house and were like, we'll catch a flight tomorrow. And so everyone was notified by, like, 6.30 in the morning, Mm because that's when the plane should have landed. Yeah. And they woke up at, like, whatever, a normal time, like, 8.30, 9 o'clock. Yeah. And they were like, we'll get a flight today. And everyone thought they were gone. (laughs) Yeah, and their families thought they were dead. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, that's awful. Yeah. But then they weren't, which is great. Which, yeah. That's like also the, the best luck ever that that's the flight you missed. Well, those are our unexplained events. Sorry, mine was so long. I feel no, like it's an hour. We are, we're cranking out some long episodes recently. Yeah, well, because <laughs> we haven't recorded. I know. Frequently. We're, we're going to try to get on a 
on a schedule okay. of some kind. Now that, like, I moved in and mm-hmm. you're moved in and we're, like, actually starting our lives. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the summer was a bit of a mess. Yeah. Um, so we are Hell and High Horror. We are mm-hmm. Hell and High Horror on all social media except for Twitter. On Twitter, we're Hell High Horror. I'm Austin Castelli on all social media. I'm Reparana Ann on everything. Our Patreon is up. Like, you heard the shout-outs at the beginning of the show. Those are for our $10 patrons. We're going to try to set up a horror movie night of some kind on Twitch. So you'll want to join. Yeah, you'll want to join. It'll be for patrons only. And our PayPal is up if you feel like donating. We have a few more costs now that we're long distance. So it would yeah. help with that. That's uh, paypal.me slash horror, all one word. And I think that's it. Is that it? Yeah, everybody better wish me. This will come out after my birthday. If you didn't wish me a happy birthday, I hate you. Yep. W- wish her a belated happy birthday. Yeah, or do that. Yeah, that'll be fun. Belated. Send her memes. Everyone send a dollar to the <laughs> PayPal for my birthday, and then we'll have thousands of dollars. Yay. And, yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, so, happy hauntings, or everyone. Or you can also cookies. Cookies are accepted as well. Um <laughs> Okay, happy hauntings, everyone. Okay, happy hauntings. Bye. Bye.